Good afternoon and welcome to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Over the next hour, you'll learn how to live from your true self through all of life's twists and turns. And you'll be challenged to lean into the mysteries of life to find your own deepest wisdom. Now, here's your host, Andrea Matthews. Good afternoon and welcome to the Authentic Living Show. We are so happy to welcome Lisa Coffey back to the Authentic Living Show today. This time to talk about her latest book, Song Divine, a new lyrical rendition of the Bhagavad Gita. She's also teamed up with award-winning composer and producer David Vito Grigoli to create Song Divine, the Bhagavad Gita rock opera. And we will hear some of that music today, too. The Bhagavad Gita is a sacred text meant to facilitate awareness of the divine self and of oneness. And we are so excited to get the opportunity today to explore it with Lisa's help. So you want to stay here for this whole show. Best-selling author Lisa Coffey, lifestyle and wellness expert, media personality, and the founder of CoffeeTalk.com, has written 15 books. Her most recent book is Song Divine, a new lyrical rendition of the Bhagavad Gita. She's been featured on Good Morning America, The Today Show, and many other national and local outlets with her ancient wisdom, modern style approach to life. Deepak Chopra says, your heart will thank you for Lisa's helpful and heartfelt vision. Lisa was honored with the Dharma Award from AAPNA for Excellence in Promoting Awareness of Ayurveda. She was awarded a commendation by the Mayor of Los Angeles for her outstanding contribution to the yoga community. She's a member of NAMA, National Ayurvedic Medical Association, and the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Lisa is a certified instructor with the Chopra Center. You can get Lisa's free email newsletters and more at coffeetop.com. Welcome, Lisa, to the Authentic Living Show. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you, Andrea. I so appreciate this. I love your show. I'm a big fan. Well, we enjoy uh, getting all kinds of information that's going to help us get in touch with that authentic self, and certainly that's one of the tasks that is accomplished very well by the Bhagavad Gita. So we're going to be talking a lot today about what the background is and what the meaning is of this book. So tell us first how you decided to write this book and then how and why you connected with uh, Vito Grigoli to create the rock opera. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting story. Um, You know, I've been on the spiritual path for a long time and the Bhagavad Gita kept showing up in my life like, you know, people would give it to me and stuff and I'd look at it and I'd know I was supposed to read it, but I couldn't get into it and I didn't understand it and it was so, you know, kind of wieldy and I felt like it was over my head and I didn't, I'm like, what's the story here? You know, I didn't, I couldn't find a storyline and I was mixing up the character. So I just wasn't getting very far with it. And then at one point I decided I really needed a guru. I had, I had worked with Deepak Chopra and Dr. Lott, and I had a lot of wonderful teachers over the years, but I was really into Vedanta, and I thought, I really need like a Swami. I need to go to classes instead of just trying to do this all on my own, you know, like a lot of people do. I, I was getting the knowledge from just reading books and stuff. I really need a community, and I need to go to classes. So, um, I found uh, the Vedanta Society of Southern California, and um, my Swami, Swami Sarvadevananda, was teaching one day up at uh, the Santa Barbara Center. And 
I thought, hmm, maybe this would be a good guy to go see. So I convinced my husband, like, for my birthday, let's go to the temple. And he's like, oh, that's so you, right? <laughs> like, we're not going to go out to Vegas or anything. We're going to the temple on my birthday. So we did that. And I saw him and I looked at him and I'm just like, that's the guy. That's my teacher, you know. And uh, he approached me and said, hi, how are you? Welcome. And he was just so warm and generous with his time. And uh, I said, I think I've been looking for you. And he says, well, that's great. Um, let me have your email address. I've got all kinds of classes and stuff. In fact, I have a class on the Bhagavad Gita right now. <laughs> and I'm like, perfect. So... So I started up on this class, and it was every Tuesday at 4.30. So I'd drive to the temple, and I ended up spending all day there because from 4.30 to 5.30 is the class. From 5.30 to 6, they have tea and discuss things. And then from 6 to 7, they have, like, prayer and meditation. And then from 7 to 7.30, they have dinner. And they just kept asking me to stay. Oh, do you want to stay for this? Oh, do you want to stay for dinner? And I'm like, yeah, sure, I'll stay, I'll stay. And then there's another class from 7.30 to 8.30, and then I drive home, you know. And so I did this every Tuesday for five years, and, you know, then the pandemic hit, and we don't have classes in person anymore, but we have them online. But one day when we were studying the Bhagavad Gita, this Swami said to all of us, it would be really good for you guys to start memorizing some of these verses. And I thought, okay, well, that's all well and good, but... You know, my memory isn't that great anymore these days. I'm getting older, and and I don't really kind of understand the Sanskrit. And then when you translate it to Sanskrit, it doesn't rhyme anymore. It doesn't have rhythm. And, it you know, to me, it, like, barely made sense. So I thought, okay, well, I've been a songwriter before. Back in the 90s, I used to have a record label, and we had music on Nickelodeon and all that. I thought, what if I change the verses to be in English and have them rhyme and have them have rhythm. So it's like a big poem, you know? I mean, the Gita was originally written in Sanskrit as a song so that people could pass it down through the generations and the oral tradition. What if I just tried doing this? And then I started really having fun with it. And I thought, this is pretty good. But then I started having doubts and started thinking, wait, I'm just, who am I? Like this student, this white girl, I don't know anything about Indian culture and tradition. Maybe I'm doing it wrong or, you know, I don't want to insult anybody. I want to be very respectful. So I took my Swami aside one day and said, this is what I've been doing in secret and I want to share it with you and I want you to tell me if you think it's good, if I'm on the right track or if you think it's bad, I won't do it anymore. You know, I was basically asking for permission and asking for his blessing, you know, and he said, I love it. And I was so happy. I was so happy. And he said, keep going. I want you to write the whole thing. So I did. So I rewrote the whole Bhagavad Gita. I actually simplified it a lot because in the Gita, there's some ancillary characters and I took those out. I just left Krishna and Arjuna, who are the two main characters. 
and I shortened some of the verses. I left out some of the verses that really would be confusing to Western society or modern society, like the caste system stuff, the verses that got like misinterpreted over the years and stuff. So I left that out. So it went from like 700 verses in the original Gita to 400 verses. So it's a much more uh, accessible. It's much more, you know, digestible to the American palate. And uh, yeah, so the book came out in uh, 2017. And then, you know, as I was writing the book, I kept hearing music in my head because that's how I would get the rhythm and stuff, you know, and I'm like, okay, this has got to be a song. Like one day, maybe when I get through writing this whole thing, you know, one thing at a time, Lisa, don't get too ahead of yourself. Mm, I got it. I got to write this as a song. I got to write this as a song. So I always had it in the back of my mind. So when the book came out, I went to see Vito and Vito has been my friend for like 20 years. I met him through the Centers for Spiritual Living. He was one of the musicians at our church. And when Greg and I got married, he was one of the guys that came to play at the wedding and the reception. So we've been in touch this whole time, but, you know, I was working on books. I didn't have any musical projects, but I approached him with this and I'm like, okay, Vito, this is my idea. What do you think? And he's like, wait a second. (laughs) Are you serious? I said, yeah, I'm serious. I'm serious. He goes, this has never been done before. I said, I know this has never been done before. This this is why we got to do it. It's such a good idea. He goes, it's a good idea. But, you know, like this one chapter alone has something like 60 verses in it. A song, you know, that plays on the radio has maybe two or three verses and a chorus and a bridge. And how are we going to do this? I said, I don't know how we're going to do it, but let's try. And he said, okay. So we started and we just went song by song by song, chapter by chapter by chapter. Every chapter is a song. And I had to do a lot of, um, you know, condensing and rewriting and, and, you know, just kind of tweaking because in a book, you can, when you're talking and you're reading it out loud, you can understand some of the, the words fine. But when you're singing it, some words aren't singable. You know what I mean? So I had to change some of the words to be singable. So it was a challenge, but we did it. And it took three years, <laughs> three years <laughs> through the pandemic, through Vito you know, moving twice, through me moving twice. Lots of stuff going on, <sighs> but here it is. It's born. It's our baby. Yeah, and it's amazing. Uh, I, I, re- I mean, I, I've sat down and read The Song Divine, uh, your book, in, you know, two days I was done with it. And, and, and it wasn't because I was trying to speed read. It was because the language is so accessible, and it was really, I was really able to really under, of course, I've studied the Bhagavad Gita before, so I guess that helps a little bit, but um the 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 language is so accessible that it's easy to kind of really understand what's going on there, and uh, that's that's very very helpful. Thanks. 
Thanks. Yeah. yeah. See, this is the kind of book I wish I had when I was first studying the Bhagavad Gita. So I thought this would be a good way for, you know, Westerners who, like, everybody's in yoga class or meditation class, and you hear about the Bhagavad Gita, but you're kind of like, I don't know, what is it? I guess it's good, but I don't really get it, you know? But with this book, it's like, oh, okay, yeah, cool. I'll yeah, so... Yeah, so most people know that it's a it's a story between I mean a story a conversation between Arjuna and Krishna, uh, but yes. and most people understand that Krishna Krishna was a man but also a god, um, right. and at least it's that's in American lingo, but it but a lot of people don't know the whole background story of the conversation between Arjuna and Krishna. So w- briefly, can you tell us? Um, the, the story of what's going on that started that conversation. Sure, yeah. So Arjuna is uh, like the everyman, right? He represents each one of us. The whole Bhagavad Gita, you know, many people say this really happened. And other people say, oh, it's all like mythology or analogy or whatever. But either way, I mean... It's fantastic, right? They really do have a Kurukshetra, the, the city where this war took place. But what happened was Arjuna is a member of the Pandava family. He's the second oldest brother. And the Pandava family was kind of infighting with their cousins, the Kuravas. So the Kuravas were like the bad guys and the Pandavas were the good guys. The Pandavas wanted like... Um, just everybody to be happy and everything great and, you know, everybody get along and and feed everybody and take care of everybody and that kind of thing. And the Kuravas were very selfish and this, what they did was almost evil, you know, so they were the bad guys. So they actually took a lot of the Pandavas land. They tricked them, they deceived them, all kinds of stuff. And uh, the one uncle kind of allowed it to happen because his son was a Kurava and he wanted his son to rule the whole land, not just half the land with the point of us. So they tried to make all kinds of resolution between these people. Krishna even came in and was trying to broker a deal. Just give them half, just give them, you know, one village or something that they can be in charge of. And the Kuravas would not have it. They would not have it. So finally, they had no choice. It was war. You know, it was absolute war. And so Krishna went to the head of the Kaurava's family and to Arjuna and said to them, okay, since we're having this war, we want it to be a fair fight. So I'm going to tell you guys what. One of you can have my entire army. At that time, Krishna was the king of Mathura. So he had a big, powerful army behind him. He said, you can have one, one side can have my entire army, all the weapons, everything that comes with it. The other side can have me, just me by their side, giving advice. I will not fight because I'm not going to take sides. I'm not going to fight, but I'm going to just give advice. So of course the guy on the Kurava side is salivating, right? And he's like, Oh, let me pick first. Let me pick first. He said, 
No, I'm going to let Arjun pick first because he arrived at the meeting first, and so I think that's a fair way to pick. So, Arjuna, you pick first. And he said, oh, it's not not even, this is the easiest decision I've ever made. Krishna, I want you by my side. And the Korova guy's like laughing, thinking he left out so much. He gets this huge army with all the weapons, and Arjuna gets one guy. And Arjuna is the one who knows he's really lucky because he knows that Krishna is, at this point, he doesn't know he's God incarnate, but he knows there's something special about him. He knows that he can really trust Krishna. He loves Krishna. It's like one of his very best friends who's always been there for him. So they go to have this war and Arjuna is on his side. The Kurovas are on the other side. And Arjuna starts to get cold feet. And he looks at Krishna and he says, okay, I'm the general of this army. I got to see what we're up against, you know, because they have your army and stuff. And I don't know. I got to see what's going on here. So drive me. Krishna was driving his chariot. So he said, please drive me to the center of the battlefield so I can get a good look at what's going on. So Krishna drives them to the center of the battlefield. Arjuna looks out over the other side and starts having a panic attack. He's like, no way. He's like, they outnumber us probably 10 to 1. I'm looking out at these people. These are my family. These are my cousins, my uncles, my teachers, my neighbors, my mentors. I, how am I supposed to kill these people? How am I supposed to fight against them? I don't know if this is right. I think maybe I should just walk away. I think, you know, maybe I'm done here and we'll just call it a day. I'm just going to forfeit. Without Arjuna, there's no way they were going to win. Arjuna is the best archer in the whole of India. And Arjuna is like, I think I'm just going to have to walk away. But I don't know. There's something telling me that's a fight, but I don't know if I should. So he drops his bow on the ground and he falls to his knees. And he's like, Krishna, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And that's when the Bhagavad Gita starts. And the whole thing is... In each chapter, pretty much, Arjuna asks Krishna a question, and Krishna answers the question, and it's all about life and how to live life. And it's, you know, interesting that this very profound, intense, spiritual conversation took place on a battlefield, you know, not in a garden, not in somebody's living room. It took place in a battlefield so that's an analogy for how we are living life yeah perfect yes that that yes that was so beautifully told thank you so much for the way you just told that story and that that helps so much to understand the background because yes the that analogy of life is a battlefield so all right we're going to talk some more about this right after the break don't go away we'll be right back your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. Broaden your mind. Open your heart for a greater understanding of how to express your pure and authentic nature. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Simron. 
author, publisher, and life mentor, broadens minds and opens hearts to a greater understanding of life, consciousness, and humanity. 1111 Talk Radio is every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. 1111 Talk Radio. You are not on a journey. You are the journey. You are experience experiencing itself. Live up to your fullest potential. This is the Voice America Empowerment Channel. You're listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now toll-free, 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at andreamatthews.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. And we're back talking today to Lisa Coffey about her latest book, Song Divine, a new lyrical rendition of the Bhagavad Gita. And we just heard the story of uh, the background story of the conversation between Arjuna and Krishna, which is described in the Bhagavad Gita. I want to know a little bit more about who Krishna is. Um, I think that's a little bit of mystery for uh, um, Americans. The Western culture doesn't make much room for somebody like Krishna, so... Can you tell us, uh, it says, he's described by Arjuna as being both be- being and non-being. So what does that mean, and how does is Krishna distinguished from Brahman? Right. So Krishna, you could kind of equate Krishna with Jesus Christ. It's the same kind of thing. He's God incarnate. He's the universe personified. So although he lives in a human body and he's living a human existence, he is on earth to kind of save the world, right? And to bring things back right into the world. When things, there's a line in the Gita about how when, um, uh, when the world gets too out of control, when things are always going wrong, then he has to come back to earth to make things right, to even the balance a little bit more, right? So, and that's kind of what Jesus did. So, um, at this point, like Krishna has quite a history in in Hinduism. Like the Gita isn't Hindu; it's not religious. It's very universal. It applies to any religion. It applies to any culture. It applies to any time. So that's the important thing. But Krishna himself in Hinduism is kind of like a God of love, just like Jesus preached love all the time, right? Krishna preached love. And there's stories of him when he was a little baby that are such parallels with Jesus Christ, too. I did this one talk at church about uh, the parallels of how Jesus was born versus how Krishna was born, and it's almost the same story. You know, Krishna was born in a jail and then taken away from his parents because the king was threatening to kill him because he thought, you know, Krishna would have more power than him and all this kind of stuff, right? So when he was a little boy, then he was kind of mischievous and sweet and very loving, and he'd steal butter and get into trouble and play pranks and things like that. 
if you go on YouTube, there's some like kids TV shows from India about, about a young Krishna and how he's kind of mischievous, but he always ends up doing good deeds and people learn lessons from him and they all love him, you know? And then we see Krishna um, in Hinduism as kind of the young lover where he plays the flute and all the girls come in droves to listen to the flute because it's so enticing and they're falling in love with Krishna. But what they're really falling in love with is the divine. You know, the music inspires them to see the God within. And I think that's the biggest lesson that Krishna teaches all throughout his life is that in our relationships, when we love someone, it's not the body that we love. It's not the mind that we love. It's the God within. It's that spirit within. So the being is the person like Krishna and the non-being is the spirit, which is also known as Brahman, or you could say Atman, because that's like the individual soul, but the Atman is the soul that is all of us, that we all have in common, that light that shines within each one of us. It's the same. Yeah. Okay, great. Great explanation. Thank you. One of the things that uh, I I really appreciate about... uh, the Bhagavad Gita is that it doesn't just tell us there's only one way to get to get uh, enlightenment or to get understanding or vision or however you want to describe that. Um, he says that we can use four different ways. If it, it, try concentration, and if that doesn't work, we can try meditation, and if that doesn't work, we can try devotion, and if that doesn't work, we can try surrender. And I just love that because I know somebody who plays the piano as his meditation. And uh, yes. I just think that's so beautiful because I know somebody else who actually paints houses for a living. And he says when he's yeah. painting, he's in a meditative state. So, yeah, you know, absolutely. It's, it's really, really different for different people. And I think in America, what we've done is sort of westernized a lot of what we heard from the Hindu religion or from the Buddhist religion uh, or philosophy. And we have said, oh, it's only meditation. You've got to meditate and you, you can't do it that way. You have to do it this way. And, so we've just tried to structure it into some kind of very logos kind of methodology. And I really love yeah, the fact you're that. Right. Yeah. So can you talk about what, what happens with concentration, meditation, devotion, and surrender when we what, what what do we attain when we get when we use those tools? Yeah, I think I think the, the big lesson here from Krishna is that you know, it's it's not like we have a secular life and we have a spiritual life. Like in, in Western society, we tend to go to church on Sundays and then we work all week, right? And that's our spiritual life is our Sunday going to church. But, you know, the way Krishna teaches it is our life is our spiritual practice. It's all about how we live our life. And... You know, there's four paths. There's the path of work, which Krishna says, this is good for you, Arjuna, because you're active and you're always busy and you like to do things and you like to accomplish things. So this path of work is how you can learn. Um, You know, this is your, like your spiritual learning style. This is your dharma. So you need to work. And through work, 
you can understand who you are. He says that so many times to Arjuna. You need to know who you are. That's the goal of all of these paths. So through work, and yes, if you're a musician, like I just found this quote yesterday from Swami Vivekananda, and it says, the greatest aid to the practice of keeping God in memory is perhaps music. And that, I had to write that down because I'm like, okay, that's the idea of Song Divine because you hear the music and then you remember the words, you know? So that's the whole idea. So definitely your friend that plays the piano, they're getting in touch with who they really are, that creative spirit, that, you know, being one with the piano and feeling beyond space and time, which is what we really are, not trapped in this little body. So karma yoga is the path of work. Bhakti yoga is the path of love. So this is, this is like surrender because you, you see God within each and every person. You, um, you love the God within you know, when, when we're working, we work for God. When we're loving, we're, we're loving that person, but we know that we're loving them because we feel the God within. We feel the presence of their soul. And then there's jnana yoga, and this is the one where it's more like study and concentration. And, um, you know, it's for people who... You know, Krishna says to Arjuna, this isn't really you. You're not like the academic type, the thinkers who live in their head. That's not you so much. But we all know people who are like a little professor and they want to study and they're very detail-oriented and they they need to know all the facts. And, you know, before they go on a trip, they get the map out. That's called jnana yoga. And you can... Get enlightened through that path as well, because you hear the classes or you read the book, and then you, that's called shradhana, or yes, shradhana, and then you, no, manana is first, I don't know, I'm getting mixed up, shradhana, manana, nidityasana, so then you, yeah, shradhana first, and then manana, where you think about it, and you process it, so that it makes sense for you. So it's like you, you don't just read it and take it as truth. You understand it and you know why. And so you can really embody that truth. And then nidityasana is putting it into your life, integrating it into your life. So now you don't just know it and understand it in your mind. You live it, right? So you're out there practicing what you preach and practicing what you've learned. And then the last path is Raja Yoga, which is the path of meditation. And this is how you can get enlightened by being still, being quiet, whatever that means for you. There's no one way of meditation. There's as many ways of meditation as there are people, you know, some people want to go to the forest and hike or, you know, paint houses like your friend or, you know, maybe sit quietly in a temple with a candle burning. There's so many different ways that that looks, but it's all about looking within because that's where all the answers are. You know, we don't necessarily need to look in a book or go to a lecture or have somebody tell us the truth. We can discover it at our, on our own because we already know it, because we already are it. 
we just need to be quiet enough to allow that to allow that in to our being. We're so busy all the time that, you know, there's no space. You're busy with your grocery list and your homework and your carpool and your job, you know, that, okay, got to take a break. Let's meditate. And then your mind talks about all the chatters going on and you can't find space. But if you start doing it regularly, then you allow that space to come and you start getting in the habit and it gets easier and easier. And it's like, it's beautiful. It's like oxygen, you know, you need it. Yeah. And we can even move so close to that, that it becomes a walking meditation so that we're in a, in a sort of meditative place a lot of the time. Exactly. Exactly. So that you take that meditative state out into whatever you're doing and we know we're getting it, that we're becoming more spiritual when those little irritations don't bother us so much, right? That we can just say, okay, that's the way it is. That's okay. That's okay. This too will pass. Whatever, you know. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So one of the things that Krishna, I mean, Arjuna does is he asks to see Krishna. He asks to see, to have a vision, to open up his eyes. Uh we don't have a whole lot of time before the break, but is that is that what what is meant by enlightenment? Being able to see clearly the truth. Um, it's it's kind of it's it's a glimpse. Enlightenment. We can be enlightened in our daily life. There's enlightened people walking around right now. You know, you don't necessarily have to see visions to be enlightened. You can you can just have the awareness that God is in everyone and everything and still go on with living a human life. But in chapter 11 that you're talking about, Arjun is getting a little frustrated because he's processing everything Krishna is saying and it makes sense to him, but he, he just, he doesn't get it. So he says, you know, I, I get what you're saying, but it's hard for me to believe it because I don't see it. You know, I, I need to see it to believe it kind of thing. So Krishna says, okay, well, I've never done this before, and you're the only one I'm ever going to do it to, but I'm going to give you a divine eye so that you can see what I'm talking about. And so in chapter 11, Arjun starts describing everything that he's seeing, and it's not all rainbows and butterflies and unicorns, you know, it's beauty and it's evil, and it's everything, everything that's going on, and it becomes so overwhelming to him that he's like, okay, I'm not, okay, I get it. Thank you very much. Can I have my regular eye back? Because it's too much for me to handle. I can't go around living my life like this. No. And so then Christmas is okay, no problem. So he gives him his regular eye back. And then Arjuna is just blown away. And he's like, I get it now. And it's amazing. And now that I've experienced even just that glimpse of it, I can't go back, you know, I understand so deeply. And, you know, he's like, carelessly, I've addressed you as my comrade, as my friend, but you are so much more than that. It's just awe-inspiring to him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was great. we can have those glimpses. Yeah, we can have those glimpses. I mean, we don't need... Christmas to come down and give us a divine eye and then we see it for five minutes and it goes away. We can see it when we're holding a newborn baby and we feel that, 
ah, oh, that's it. You know what I mean? Those awe-inspiring moments where you go, oh my gosh, the beauty of that sunset. How is this even possible? You know, that's, that's an enlightened moment. You get those little glimpses. And, you know, if you can have them more and more and more so that you're just living in this bliss, wow, wouldn't that be great? Yes. Yes, wouldn't it be great if we could all live in bliss all the time? I agree. But one of the things yeah. that Krishna says is that we need to be able to be unmoved by the good and bad fortune. So we don't have but That's right. very long to talk about that before the break, but I, I want to just kind of, that's a tough task. We, uh, Absolutely. You know, that, that's a hard and thing to do, so that's a process. Yeah, to that. but it's a really important spiritual lesson for all of us to learn. So, you know, <laughs> I guess fortunately or unfortunately, God keeps giving us opportunities to learn it all the time. Life is not easy. It's this roller coaster. And we have these opportunities to learn. So if we could just learn the lesson and get enlightened so we don't have to come back to this earth again. And I know a lot of people get scared when they hear that. Like, what do you mean you don't want to come back? Why wouldn't you want to come back? I'm like, you know what? Even when you have the best possible life, there's still suffering. You know, why would you want to go through that if you don't have to when you can just be in bliss? Yeah, Absolutely. All right, we're going to take another break right now, and we'll be back in just a few minutes with more from Lisa Coffey about her book, Song Divine, a new lyrical rendition of the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, And we're going to hear a little bit of music from the rock opera uh, also when we come back. So stay here for that. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Things Worth Considering, featuring host Gord Riddell and Alexia Georgiousis, is a program that's all about connections. The connections we make with our families, our workplaces, friends, and others around us. It's also about connections to ourself, spirit, feelings, and stories. Let us connect with you each week to explore who we are and what we can be moving forward. We can overcome the obstacles that stand in our way. Things Worth Considering airs live every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Empowerment. Change your world. Change your life. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You're listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now toll-free 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at andreamatthews.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. And we're back talking today to Lisa Coffey about her book, her book, Song Divine, A New Lyrical Rendition of the Bhagavad Gita. And we are about to get uh, an amazing experience listening to some of the music that she and David Vito Grigoli cre- uh, created together in the, uh, the album Song Divine, the Bhagavad Gita Rock Opera. 
And I believe this song is entitled I Am. And we won't be able to listen to all of it because it's really long, but we'll at least hear a portion of it. So let's go listen to that now. Find the truth and see I am water, I'm space In the earth, fire and air Ego, intellect and mind You'll find I'm everywhere In all of nature And so much more I'm the spirit that sustains The universe at its core The thread on which The world's blessings are strung Like pearls on a strand Together we are one I'm the sweet fragrance of earth I am what makes fire bright I am eternal The seed of all In the living I am life wherever you go I am with you and you are home Give me goosebumps and tears and everything else. That's great. So tell us about that song. What is that song all about? So, you know, Krishna starts out, uh, of everyone on earth, just one might look for me. One of them might find the truth and see. And he's just saying to Arjuna, you know, most people on the earth are walking around thinking that this earth is what they're here for, that They're here for, you know, to make money, to buy a house, to get married, to have kids, live the American dream, whatever it is. They're they're just walking around in an illusion. The real point of us being on earth is to understand who we are. And so there's a very small subset of people that are human on earth that really put spirituality first, that really are actively investigating who they are and what this earth is and why we're here and, and where God is in all this, right? So 
Ar- so he's telling Arjuna, you know, be be that guy, you know, be the guy who's looking for me. Be, you know, and I'm I'm right here. I'm telling you who I am. You don't have to, you know, go anywhere or do anything special to find God. I'm everywhere. I'm the water. I'm the space. I'm the earth. I'm the air. I mean, there's nothing basically that I am not. So. It's not that hard to find me. You just have to look, you know. But how many people are actually looking? And, you know, and he's saying, Krishna's saying, the thread on which the world's blessings are strung like pearls on a strand, together we are one. It's that thread that connects us that is God. So we can see that um, we are each these pearls. And as you know, pearls are like, Snowflakes, no two are ever alike. They're all different in some way, shape, or form. Um, that's one reason why they're so valuable. I also love the analogy of the pearl because the pearl is the only gem that grows from the inside out, right, and gets that luster and everything the bigger it gets. But pearls on a strand, together we are one, and that strand that connects all of us, that's God. That's in every single one of us. And eventually, we find that we're not even that pearl. We are the thread. We are, there's no separation between us, like there's separation between the pearls and there's individuation between the pearls. We're the thread. That's it, you know? And I think he says something like that in, uh, uh, you are, he says, Krishna says in chapter two, um, you are what continues on that infinite thread. So that's, that's who we are is actually the thread. So, yeah, I love it. He's saying, wake up because you're, when you're looking at these distractions, you fail to see me. Look past the illusions. Don't let the delusions hold you hostage. If you're hostage, you're not free. You know, if you're working for the paycheck, you're going to keep working for that paycheck and working for that paycheck, and then you're going to want more and different and better and bigger and a promotion and a bigger house. And it, you're in this cycle that your desires can never be fulfilled. But when you look for God and you find God, there's nothing better. There's nothing better. You know you have everything. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. Yeah, that's beautiful. Y'all did a great job yeah. of putting together the the book with the with the with the music. That was beautifully done. Thank um, you. Yeah. So I want to ask a question. We we don't have a whole lot of time left, but I, I I just wish we could just talk for like hours because there's so much here to talk about. But I wanted to talk just briefly about the gunas, the satta, the raja, and the tamas. You, you uh, these are three different ways of living that uh, uh, Krishna talks to Arjuna about and uh, makes a, lo- a lengthy um, explanation of what he means by these different uh, uh, ways of being. And uh, so I want to talk a little bit about that and how we can sort of move past or actually live more in the sattva guna. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So... Um, sattva is the guna that's where we're in balance. It's like the middle path. It's um, goodness and purity and, you know, our best possible self, um, where we're honest and we're 
steadfast and we have determination, but just in the right amount, you know, just like the, the Buddhists call it the middle path. Rajas is more like too active, overactive, overly ambitious, um, hyper, uh, impatient, that kind of thing. Like you want it now. And Thomas is the opposite. Thomas is like too slow, like apathy and stuck and unmotivated and lazy and that kind of thing, right? So those are two opposite ends of the spectrum where sattva is in the middle. So we all go in and out of these tendencies, these gunas, all the time. We can't help it. You know, we're having a bad day. We might feel tamasic. We want to sit on the couch and binge on Netflix. You know, that's okay. We're human. We're human beings. We are not going to be perfect all the time. But if we're aware that we're doing that, then we can help bring ourselves back into balance and we're not going to stay on that couch for weeks on end, right? (laughs) We're just going to say, okay, I get that. And it's interesting about the gunas too because you have to kind of move up the ladder. You can't go from Thomas to Satsa. You've got to go from Thomas to Rajas and then to Satsa. So say we're sitting on the couch binging Netflix and we know that we're now out of balance. What do we have to do to get in balance? We have to get up off the couch. We have to be active. We have to get our act together and you know, force ourselves if we have to and run around the block or whatever. So now we get super, super active and then we can come back to that calm state of sadhva. But the important thing to remember is that there is a state higher than sadhva and that's what we have to reach towards and we can only get it to it through sadhva. We can't go, you know, just like we have to go from Thomas to Rajas and from Ramashis Thomas, we go from sattva to enlightenment. You can't get to enlightenment from Thomas. You can't get to enlightenment from Rajas. You have to get to sattva first and then go beyond sattva to that elevated state. And, you know, we could call that turiya or the fourth state or, you know, there's lots of different terms, but I think we've all been there. Like when you're in meditation and you're very, very quiet and it's very still and you lose track of time, that's what it is. That's, that's the state that we want to get to. When everything is easy and it flows and you're beyond time and space, that's that glimpse of enlightenment that shows you who you really are. When you're at that state, you don't have any aches or pains. You don't have any worries. You're not concerned about, you know, the boss was yelling at you or the the neighbor cut down your tree or whatever. There's all these crazy things that happen to us in life that kind of are here to test us and have us learn so that we, so that we realize how ridiculous it is. You know what I mean? It's like we, at the time we might think, Oh my gosh, my son's marrying this girl. I don't like and blah, blah. And it's like, you think it's the most horrible thing on earth or whatever, but you know what? It is what it is, and he has his lessons to learn, and she has her lessons to learn, and you have your lessons to learn. And so be loving, be accepting, be supportive, whatever, because if you object, it's just going to drive you crazy, right? There's no, what good is going to come from it? So, you know, things like that, that life throws our way every single day, that 
traffic, the, you know, somebody won't return, you want to return a sweater and they won't take, take it or they tell you it's a lower price or something. All these crazy little things that happen to us, that, those are the things that are going to help us grow spiritually. Because when we're, when we're in conflict, when we're in pain, when we're suffering, those are the times we go to God. Those are the times, like in that Christmas carol, we fall on our knees, fall on our knees and say, God, help me. When everything's all hunky-dory and you're taking a vacation to Hawaii, you're just like, hey, Lottie, die. You know, <laughs> everything's great. I don't need God right now. I'm doing just fine. But we need to see God at all times, not just in the suffering, but in our joy and praise God and love God in on the trip to Hawaii and say, oh, my gosh, I see God in the sun. I see God in the sand. I see God in the pineapple juice. You know, I, I am so present with God and so grateful for this moment at the same time as, you know, God, get me out of this mess because I can't pay my mortgage this month, you know? So, right. Yeah. Yes, and, and that being yeah. able to see God in everything is a form of non-attachment in and of itself. And we only have just a, a not even much time at all left in the show, but that 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 idea of non-attachment that's so pri- primary to the uh, the Hindu religion and to Buddhist philosophy that uh, is talked about so much, and what you just clarified really well is that whole idea that we we. If we're looking at God all the time, then we're not all attached to all this other stuff that's going on. And exactly. so there is, and it's yeah. it's it's surrender because surrender is the highest possible spiritual state. When you are like, you know what, Jesus, take the wheel, or you know, Krishna, whatever you want me to do, I'll do. I am a vessel expressed through me. You know, I'm whatever it takes. Uh, I'm going to let you do the work because I'm not the one working anyway. There's a line in the Gita, which which Krishna says to Arjuna, just let me do it. You're not the one working anyway. And Arjuna's like, I'm the one with the bow and arrow. You know, he's like, yeah, but who's who's actually shooting it? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's really the truth, and, and I wish we had more time to talk about all of it, just everything, every little thing. I had a bunch of questions yeah. here. That we but we, we had a great time talking. Thank you so much, Lisa, for being on the show. I really appreciate it. I love your book, and I, I'm going to tell everybody, go out and buy Song Divine, a new lyrical rendition to the, of the Bhagavad Gita. And, uh, yeah, I, I find you, it Song Divine. Yeah, if you go to songdivine.com, you'll see all the information about the book and the music and everything. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much again, Lisa, for being on the show. And we're going to be back again next week. And remember, your job, should you choose to accept it, is to give birth to yourself. Thanks again for listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Join us again next Wednesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time. 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We'll talk again next week.